Kathleen Friedel is a political historian best known for her book, The Drug Wars in America from 1940 to 1973. They were the gateway, she argues, to our contemporary crisis. Kathleen Friedel, welcome. Once upon a time, you write, we had a pretty effective drug enforcement regime. What happened? Yeah, our effective drug enforcement regime including our policing of illicit drugs, was premised on a regulatory model of taxes and tariffs. So we tracked all opioids, including heroin, which was once illicit painkiller, as soon as they came into the country by virtue of a tariff. And then by following them through a tax stamp at every location, we tracked those drugs, including their diversion. But in the 1940s and in the 1950s, the Bureau of Narcotics narcotics and drugs, which is the predecessor to the Drug Enforcement Agency, landed on this great idea, um, and great idea there is in quotes, to actually prohibit heroin because there was such a problem with dungeon of the drug. And by ever-increasing steps, slowly but surely, we've wound up into a place where drug prohibition now greatly compounds the harms of the drug crises itself. So drug prohibition has turned what was once a regulated drug and a known risk into an unregulated drug and an unknown risk. In the 80s, Kathleen, and we remember it, suddenly pain doctors appeared and pain medications galore and without warning, I mean, without warning of addiction. Um, how did this happen? Yeah, well, there are some features of the opioid crisis um, you know, the sounds of which you just ran through um, and which are heartbreaking to hear. There are some features of the current opioid crisis, the worst drug crisis in U.S. history, by the way, um, that are very typical of other drug crises that we've had in the past in the sense that, you know, it's been widely acknowledged that they were preceded by kind of the abandonment of government policy um, from certain communities and certain places and also the disappearance of work. But there are some things, there are some features to our current opioid crisis that are kind of a failure of politics specific to our current moment. And in particular, there are two things, drug prohibition, which we just ran through, and the second one is global neoliberalism. And that neoliberalism is typically characterized by three things. One is deregulation. The second is austerity, which usually involves the privatization of some government functions, and then the third is unrestrained free trade. Remarkably, mm. all three of those things play a role in the opioid crisis. And in particular, what you were just mentioning, the kind of mass marketing of pain pills has a lot to do with the transformation of the institutional culture of the Food and Drug Administration as a result of deregulation and privatization. I have no problem with maintaining borders. What makes it immoral, in my view, is that many of the people we're trying to keep out are people who are fleeing countries that were made places it's hard to get by by U.S. policies throughout history. It's perfectly fine to keep people out, but then stay the fuck out of their business. Don't interfere with other countries, and then when those interferences result in negative consequences, tell people that they can't flee to your country for safety. That's what's immoral. 
Well, what we found out is actually what was quite fascinating that there is this pervasive perception, especially in, in, in coastal communities that that um, uh, or across America, that the predominantly a lot of beneficiaries of public assistance programs are the urban poor. But specifically when it comes to disability, when you take a look at the numbers, the rates of receipt of disability programs are at their highest in rural America. Now, naturally, there's just a lot fewer people in a lot of these communities. So that means that there are fewer folks on disability. There's still the vast majority of people on disability are in urban or suburban communities. But when you get down to these rural places, there seems to be a direct correlation between the size of the community and also the remoteness of it as also the, the rate of receipt of disability benefits. What are the racial and we found Go ahead. No, I was going to say that we found, through our analysis, we found that there are 102 counties across the entire country in which, at least at minimum, one in six working-age adults are receiving disability benefits. And when you take a look at what the average rate is in, in rural America versus urban America, rural communities have rates of disability received that are nearly twice as high as urban America. What are the racial demographics of people on disability? Many of these communities that had the highest rates of disability receipt are, are overwhelmingly white. Uh, they are uh, uh, primarily supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Um, and, and that does challenge perceptions that folks who are on the public dole um, are, are uh, you know, really rooted in minority communities. I mean, I talked to one man who's 26 years old, and he's an electrician in the coal mines, and he makes really good money, about 100000 a year, he said. And his opinion of the people who are receiving uh, government disability is he thought a lot of them were just, you know, takers, just, just lazy check grabbers. And what I've seen in a lot of these places, and interviewing dozens um, and dozens of people living there, is that there's such tension in these places that... that Despite the fact that many of these communities are overwhelmingly white, there are these still these social hierarchies that exist in places predominantly poor, Christian, and white. And you think of uh, uh, hierarchies uh, a lot of times as racially based or caste based, but in this in these places, a lot of it comes down to whether or not you are working. And if you are not working and you're receiving a government benefit for the disability. Uh, you become more or less a, a second-class citizen in a lot of ways in these places. In some communities, the churches help out. Is that rare? I mean, churches do help out, definitely. But what I've seen, which is really interesting um, and, and reflected also in survey data, is, is the fact that um, uh, people who are beneficiaries of a lot of these government programs in places that have had the highest rates of disability receipt um, become untethered, more or less. They become more and more disconnected from the um, from just regular society. They go to church less. They are less civically engaged. They obviously don't have those connections through their employment networks. And they become further and further socially disconnected. And and that is also reflected in that, that the tension that you see in these places between folks who work and are still connected and folks who don't. Yeah, and also another factor of that is they just they don't vote. A lot of them don't vote either. You went to Grundy, Virginia, and tell the story of Tyler McLaughlin and his family. He seemed to be in better shape than his parents, as you describe him. 